welcome to Manufacturing Tech Australia with Shane Williams and Paul Mason, where they share the latest manufacturing and tech news and explore innovative solutions to help you improve your business. As the legendary Bob Dylan once sang, the times they are a changing. And so is the world of classic cars. In this episode, we speak to Chris Mander and Scott Anderson from Revival EV. Two Melbournean trailblazers revolutionising the way we perceive and interact with classic cars by giving them a sustainable electric twist. They're the Marty McFly and Doc Brown of our time, retrofitting not a DeLorean, but a beautiful 1971 Atlantic Blue BMW 2002 into an electric classic. We discuss their vision of a sustainable classic car scene, the role of vintage car conversions in the greater push for environmental sustainability, the unique challenges and innovations that come with merging modern technology with vintage charm, and their valuable lessons for Aussie manufacturers looking to drive innovation in their own fields. We trust you'll enjoy the interview. Chris and Scott, thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Tech Australia. Thanks for having us. Cheers, Paul. Thanks, Shane. So I might just kick straight on in. So Chris, Revival is in the early stages of transforming a 71 Atlantic Blue BMW, which you were kind enough to give us a, a bit of a demo of last week at your facility. So you're converting this into an electric classic. So can you describe what success looks like for this project and how does that really tie into your broader vision of integrating sustainability into the classic car scene? Yeah, no worries. I might start by answering your question the other way around. So I might start with our vision for Revival EV. Our overarching vision is to revive classic cars and turn them into capable modern daily drivers. So we've got a sort of a specific bent. Sustainability is an element of our vision, but usability is actually really key to our vision. Old and classic cars can be a chore to own and drive. Actually, they're usually a chore to own and drive. Mechanical failure, overheating, complicated start procedures, expensive maintenance, the list goes on. You know, our little baby blue beamer smelt like petrol. <laughs> in the cabin while we were driving up, that's going to go away. We have two lenses. So one is sustainability and the other is this usability. And we see there's a confluence of trends occurring right now that is creating a viable environment for our vision. One of those is growing desire for reuse, just generally, and sustainability um, in terms of, sort of energy and energy efficiency, but also nostalgia. And we think these three things are really coming together to create some fertile space for what we're doing. So then... To go to the first part of your question, our approach is to build a prototype and learn by doing, rather than pretend we know exactly where the business is. So ultimately, success for us looks like a beautiful and enjoyable car to drive at the other end, plus the discoveries we need to make to identify what a viable business model might be in this space. Be that more conversions, and there are conversion shops out there today that are operating at the very high level. I think that if we were to do conversions, it wouldn't be at that super unobtainium level, but there's also software integration, componentry, certification, consultancy, or even vehicle to grid tech. Converter Classic could make the perfect home battery. So there are a number of spaces that we're exploring and really success for us is to deliver the prototype, validate a potential business model. And then I think the car becomes a marketing tool for our growth, but also credibility and proof that, that we've done it and to the standard and to the quality that that we want to deliver it. So that's what success looks like. And hopefully we're only a few months away from driving driving the little Beamer around. 
That's great. And I guess on that nostalgia and usability piece, what I really liked about you guys were doing was you could have just put a digital cluster in the car and integrate that with the EV system and the powertrain and things, but you're actually integrating with the analog clusters. So you've really got that classic look. So it look and feels like the original car, but you've got this beautiful EV powertrain behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I think this theme of integration is really important to us, even though we don't know where the business model goes. We've got some opinions that we're really exploring. And I think it is about taking what is the essence of the original car, but making it much more usable for today. We don't want to change it. And in fact, our plan is to make this conversion reversible. So we're really honoring the original car. So Scott, I might switch over to you, mate. Chris was just talking about this concept of reuse as one angle of sustainability. And then he dropped in a little nugget around the potential opportunity for the car to be used as a house battery. And there's probably a bunch of other angles when you think about sustainability practices across industry. When you're thinking about the role of the vintage car conversion and its contribution to environmental sustainability, how does that mission fit into the kind of wider push for EV adoption? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Look, converting a car to electric is definitely better environmentally than going out and buying a new car. It takes less energy to produce, it takes less material, there's less environmental waste, and overall it's definitely better for the planet. And I do believe that conversion of classic cars is an important part of our environmental sustainability goals. However, as Chris mentioned, we don't think that environmental sustainability is necessarily the only driver or motivator for conversions. Chris touched on the idea of owning classic cars, they're stylish, they're cool, they're unique. But what I think it will do is actually generate more interest in electric cars. They'll think about, oh, okay, so there is an alternative to buying white goods on wheels or modern electric vehicles. There's some other options there. So I do think it is actually going to generate some additional interest around the ownership of electric cars. And so I do think that we'll end up with people, rather than buying a new car as a second car or something that's a bit of fun, they'll actually go be looking for a potential to buy a classic car that's been converted or to buy a classic car and convert it. So I do think from a broader picture, it will definitely reduce the number of new electric cars on the road. Australia is pretty low in terms of our EV adoption. I think we're sitting at about 3.8% last year of new vehicles sold were electric in Europe, it's about 20%. I think globally, we've either hit the tipping point or where the tipping point is in sight where all new cars will be electric. Every single automotive manufacturer at the moment is starting to scale back their ICE engines, their internal combustion engines. They've already got lines in the sand about when they're going to stop that. And that's just not the run-of-the-mill providers. That includes Lamborghini, Ferrari, Porsche. All these high-performance companies are also on board with this as well. But one of the things that Chris mentioned I think was important is it's not just about changing vehicles over to electric or new vehicles being electric. We have to look at decarbonising our entire transport, you know, housing and, in- and industry. And so we think that an electric conversion can actually form part of that. Chris mentioned vehicle-to-grid There's three types of situations where you can actually use a car battery. You can actually have vehicle to load where you can plug in an extension cord and power parts of your house or a Black & Decker kettle or electric barbecue. You can have vehicle to house, which means it powers the house. So you could have vehicle to load where it actually feeds back into the grid. The technology around the vehicle to grid stud is still pretty early and it's not quite there globally, but it's happening very fast. So what we are building on this first car is a car that's vehicle to load. 
So you could actually power your parts of your house with an extension cord for probably three days just out of that one car. So if you think about that could potentially in the future augment a Tesla power wall or some other sort of power wall. So it's not just a car that you're using on weekends. It's actually part of your energy infrastructure that adds value beyond the four wheels that it provides. Scott, something that really grabbed my attention just then, you made the comment about more modern EVs, the white goods on wheels and the kind of distinction between the nostalgia of classics and whatnot. What are you seeing in terms of perception in the market, maybe in Australia specifically, but more broadly around that distinction between the classic and the modern car? Yeah, that's interesting. I was up at a fully charged show in Sydney a few weeks ago, and actually I was blown away. It was a two-day event, and it had 15,000 people turn up to this show. And it just gives you some insight into the latent demand around everything electric. And look, it was mainly cars, but you also had charger companies, you had grid providers, you had your traditional petrochemical companies as they were stroking their stuff as well. And there was a couple of stands there around classic car conversions as well. But this is the first time they've run it in Australia. What was really interesting is you had the the MG, the Polestar, the Tesla, all of these large companies were there. And sure, there was a lot of people in those stands, but a lot of the interest was around the classic car conversions. One of the last questions from the audience to the panel was, if you were stuck in Australia, which electric car would you buy if you were here? And none of them mentioned the show sponsor or all the large car companies, they all pointed towards the two ends of the display areas and basically said, I really like that old Porsche that's been converted over there or the old VW that's over there. And that's really, I think, understandable. You know, these classic cars, they really, they create an emotional response. People either remember them or they just like them because they're unique, they're distinct, they're something a little bit different. It's not... Modern cars, they do. They all look the same. If you stack a lot of these cars up next to each other and took the badges off, you'd be hard to tell what's what. But if you have a classic BMW, instantly know that's a BMW, a VW, Beetle, or a Combi. They just look iconic. And uh, yeah, so it was really nice to see. It's a good affirmation for us that we think that there's a good market uh, in this space. I recall you telling me that when you went to the show that there was a beautiful Combi there. That over the course of the day, this chap kept on coming back making offers. <laughs> I want that combi. Will you take this? I think you're right. I think there is this nostalgia element where I think design, classic design, is being appreciated in a way that it hasn't before. And I do think that the automotive manufacturers are going to have to rethink some of their business models. Up until now, you buy a car, that car gets replaced every five years, or it's a fairly short cycle. And then they're just put into the scrapyard and they're recycled as much as they can. And that's getting better. But there's still the energy you think producing all of these vehicles. It's just crazy that we're throwing this entire thing out and starting again. So I'm hoping that we'll see that interest in sustainability. I'm hoping that will drive consumer demand and consumer behavior to force the car companies towards a model that actually has better sustainability, better reusability, not just recycling at the end. We need to be thinking about circular economy. But I think we've come full circle as well. It's initially Tesla was so cool and everyone wanted them. Now there's loads of Teslas everywhere and the BYDs and the MGs and they're not cool anymore in a way. You know, maybe it's not just a classic car scene as well, but it's also anything that's a little bit different than your, what did you call it, your white goods on wheels. But So I think any point of difference now is really important in the market. Definitely. 
So, Scott, obviously there's a lot of complexities around modifying these classic cars to, to become more eco-friendly and electrifying them, but trying to still preserve that unique character. You know, there's a lot of engineering challenges in integrating the new and the old. So I guess what are some of those challenges that you have faced or you expect to face? And I guess secondly, are there any kind of hurdles in integrating those technologies together but keeping those legacy components like we mentioned before? Yeah, that first part of the question, how do you convert a classic but retain its character? What changes do we make? Are they going to add or subtract from the experience? But this is a question Chris and I ask ourselves constantly, on an, almost on a daily basis. If you go talk to some classic car fanatics, the purists, they would say that everything on that vehicle, as it came off the factory floor, should be original and unchanged. The mere mention of an EV conversion for these people sends them into a fury. But what is interesting is that we're actually encountering less of those than I expected. So maybe I'll take a step back and dive into what some of the challenges are in, in doing conversion and integration. Well, first of all, we start off by weighing the car. So we have a sort of a starting position. We then go through the car and remove all of the internal combustion parts. So that's the engine, the radiator, the fuel pumps, the fuel tanks, the cooling lines, the ignition systems, all of that sort of stuff comes out. In the BMW, the 2002, we took out about 300 kilos of weight. And then what we have to do is a sort of a process of putting a whole lot of stuff back in. And that consists of a new motor, a reduction drive, a motor controller, an onboard charger, we're going to have a front battery box and we'll have a rear battery box. And then we have to add in a vehicle control unit, which is really the brains of the thing. All of the high voltage wiring, the 12 volt wiring, some cooling pumps for batteries and for motors. And then the instrumentation upgrades and integration. And then there's the final part is really tuning the performance of the car so that you get a well-behaved vehicle that doesn't accelerate too hard, doesn't brake too hard, and it's sort of reflective coming back to that character of the vehicle. It'll definitely be a faster, better performing car, but we don't want it to be ridiculous and undrivable. But what we've seen over the last few years is an increasing number of OEM parts available, but integrating all of those together, it's still early days. And there's very few standards around at the moment. There's no standards for communication. There's no standards for high voltage connections. What standards there are, we work with so that we can create a car that's safe for us to work on, has to be safe for the next set of mechanics or engineers that are gonna work on the car. These vehicles are 30 to 50 years old that we're targeting. We want them to be on the road for another 50 years. But coming back to sustainability, we're looking at this first car having a range of about 200, 250 kilometres. And not too worried about that because battery technology is improving so rapidly. In five or 10 years' time, we decide to take the batteries out and drop new batteries in. Even at the same weight, it would probably have 30, 40, 50% more range. We do see this as a sort of an ongoing process. And I think that fits well with the ethos of sustainability and keeping these things going longer. Scott, I think you're spot on about the battery density. I just heard in the last few weeks that the biggest manufacturer in the world in China has now just announced that they've almost doubled their battery density. So that's going to be a massive game changer because it's not just at the R&D level anymore. It's now at the production level. So that's good to hear. But I guess what I was fascinated about when you were showing us the car was around the process of you've got this old car, you've got this new EV technology, but 
what was more fascinating was around that process where you're using modern tools like you're 3D scanning the whole car and then you're 3D printing all the components and sticking them in the car before you actually get the real parts. You're using all these modern tools and tech to, to bring the whole concept together, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, you're right. Once we actually pulled all of the ICE stuff out of the car, we scanned the vehicle and most of the work in the design from then is actually CAD-based. Designing the motor mounts, designing the battery boxes, designing the placement of all of these parts in the vehicle is its a bit of a game of Tetris. And those tools, CAD packages, are fantastic because we can instantly see you know, where things are going to go, what the clearances are like, how we can bolt onto existing mounts. Pushing the envelope with scanning and CAD design and modern manufacturing, I think, is really important because it provides different ways of trying to solve problems. It provides sometimes quicker insight through using these tools than you would by traditional methods. And what we're doing is don't just land on CAD as the answer and then CAD everything. You do have to still do an element of physical. You actually need to combine both of those to get better outcomes. Absolutely, yeah. The physical world and the digital world and not just a digital twin, but the physical yeah. side as well mm. and combining the two to pull it all together and make sure it's working properly. Yeah, because yeah, different people think different ways. I think some of those old tools of just get out a bit of paper, sketch out what you're trying to do first and then start to work towards the CAD side of things. I think that traditional method of design, designers then go to, you know, the production guys and then to manufacturing and that linear model of development is out the window now. You've got to do it iteratively and work together in collaboration to, to make it all work. Definitely. Scott, how do you accommodate for things like, let's just say the 2002 wasn't necessarily known for its high performance. So how do you accommodate for... I'm taking a, let's call it sub 100 kilowatt motor out and dropping in something that's probably pushing 150 to 200, not rip the thing apart. Like what's involved in that? Yeah, it is a challenge. And actually we have to go through an engineering approval process for the road approval. We don't want to turn this into a racing car. And so the motor that we're actually putting in is probably too powerful if we didn't dial it back at all. One of the the great things about the newer software is we can actually dial back the amount of power. When I talked about a sort of a well-behaved car, it was something that was not going to shred the differential because we could. If we didn't dial back the power on the motor, an electric motor produces 98% of its torque at zero RPM. And so you could actually shred the drive shaft, shred the differential, or definitely shred the tyres. And so we don't want to do that. Look, we will do some performance upgrades on it. We will be revisiting the brakes. We're actually looking to use a Bosch iBoost brake master cylinder electronic control. So that'll bump up the brake capacity and the booster capacity. We'll be upgrading the suspension. So we want to make that handle a little bit better. We want to build a car that will keep up with today's traffic. A little bit of fun to drive, so a little bit spirited, but not ridiculous. But it is an interesting balance, Shane, trying to get that balance right. I think that relates to the opinion on usability as well. I think there are plenty of hobbyists out there and other converters that are really going for power. And you see it time and time again on YouTube. It's the drag strip. It's Tesla V Lamborghini or, or whatever it is that's... You know, I think that's one element of electric power, but I think our element is a little different to that. Yeah, we're trying to build a car that that somebody can drive as a daily driver that's a little bit fun, but equally they can, on the weekend, they can throw the kids in the back and they can take them to soccer. So it's that sort of that, that balanced lifestyle vehicle. 
And plug the barbecue in the back. Yes. While they're playing soccer. <laughs> Cook up a sausage. So, Chris, I might throw to you, mate. Imagine transforming a classic to an electric requires a fair blend of sort of innovative thinking and collaboration probably across multiple disciplines. Yeah, based on the experience you've had so far, could you share kind of your top three recommendations that you think SME manufacturers who are looking to drive innovation in their field, not necessarily in the field of making electric cars, but the sort of things that SME manufacturers could be doing more effectively, whether that's with industry partners or shareholders or interest groups, et cetera? Yeah, I think there are three things that we've learned and learning and applying. My background is in consumer software product development. The manufacturing world is relatively new to me. I'm, I'm a car hobbyist, backyard tinkerer, but I think that they're the common language to innovation, no matter what the field is. And it looks a lot like kids playing. I know that sounds like it's trivializing, but I think thing number one is just be curious and don't pretend to know the answer. So whether that is being trying to guess the business model or the market, but also the product itself. I think innovation is a lot about experimentation and playing. Have opinions, but hold them lightly. Experiment, try new tools, try new techniques. Whether that's embracing modern design or manufacturing ideas or techniques, it's, I think, really be curious and be simple <laughs> with your curiosity, I think. I think number two is be open to working with others. This is certainly the approach that we are taking. We're not putting our hands around what we're doing and like a black box. I think be open to people and companies outside of your space. I think that innovation often comes from the application of taking different lenses to old problems. And I think also mashing up skills like Scott and I, I think we have a common love affair for cars and this idea of converting to electric but we don't have the same backgrounds. He's got operations and we both have strategy. Uh, but in the mashup of the skills, I think that maybe if we were hiring each other as our first employee, we might not hire the other one. But what does he know about this stuff? But that mashup, I think, is really important. And maybe that's a bit like you, Shane and Paul, I think, mashing your skills together. But also in terms of being open to working with others, we brought interns into the project. Final year from Swinburne, we've got three interns. And it's great because we're getting new ideas and effort and energy, what it makes me realize is that I'm turned to an old guy. I think the <laughs> skills that the younger generation have got are so different. They come out of university and really with a set of skills, particularly in innovation, because they're digital natives in a way that we never were. So be open to work with others. And yeah, the interns have been fun, actually. It's, they come to the table with a very different mindset. It's generational, but it's beyond that. It's just different ways of looking at stuff. And even when we were doing some of the design for the instrumentation, some of the ideas that they came out with were left of field and, yeah, it challenged my thinking. So I'm equally learning from them as I hopefully that they're, they're learning from us. I think part of that is how we're inviting them into what we're working on. We're not saying, oh, here, your interns are going to tell you exactly what we need you to do because you're the help. It's actually, it's a, you're part of the team and coming into the project and bringing ideas. So I think how you work with others and who you work with, I think, would be my tip number two. I think third is feedback. Get it often, get it all the time. We work out of a shared makerspace in Coburg and there's furniture makers in there. There's a sort of a bronze forger. There's, there's all sorts that are in the space that we're in. But I think because we're there, we have these little incidental feedback moments, which I think have already been really valuable for us. Just watching how people react to looking at the car, to sitting in the car, to the questions they ask about how does it work and how far will it go? For example, Scott and I have 
in talking about range. And there's a challenge with range on the car. More batteries, more weight, or batteries that can store more are more expensive. But also we know that we need to meet a range expectation. But just by being in a space where we can have conversations with people that aren't sort of lost in the project like us, I think gives us these really valuable moments who will kind of say, oh, I think it needs to go this far, or where would I drive to? Those sorts of things. So feedback is, I think, the third tip. You got any more tips, Scott? Anything else you would add to that? I agree. Experimentation, be prepared to fail, I think it is really important. Like you said, that the more people you talk to, diversity that you have in a group, and based on my experience through corporate land or through engineering, everything, the better the outcomes. And really encourage that. If you've got an idea, go out and talk to people. Yeah, mind-boggling, I think, how closed-minded. Some businesses still can be. That's about, you need to know the answer. You need to plan the path before you do anything and then execute. I think we're still learning that lesson, I think, broadly. I think that's great advice for our listeners, Chris and Scott. Collaboration, experimentation, student interaction, getting feedback from all those other people in the makerspace. I think it's a really good recipe for success. And for other businesses and manufacturers listening, I think they can probably learn a bit from this episode. So I just want to thank you both for coming on today and thanks for your time. Yeah, no worries. Enjoyed Cheers it. for having Ball us. And shine. Thanks for tuning in to Manufacturing Tech Australia with Shane and Paul. Recorded on the traditional lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people. For more information, jump on the manufacturingtech.au website. Remember to hit the follow button to join us again next time as we continue to explore the intersection of manufacturing and technology.